Welcome to Practical Christian Living. David had an opportunity to be able to live for God in such a way that people would see God, but instead he failed, and in his failing, people blasphemed the Lord. Now that's a warning to us. David's life is a warning that we don't fail in such a way that people would blaspheme God because of us, that we would walk in sincerity, that we would walk without hypocrisy. When we proclaim that we are followers of Christ, people expect us to live a certain way, right? No, we're not perfect, but we should seek to live in a way that brings glory to God's name and causes others to want to come to know Him too. Today on Practical Christian Living, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-25. through 25. Here comes Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. It is rich, it is alive, it is powerful. Everything that men does will always be outdone. Even science today just changes constantly. There's always new something new being found and uh, making the old obsolete. But your word is never obsolete. It is always the truth and will always be the truth. And so we approach your word with a respect and a reverence believing that if we bring it into our lives, that our lives will be empowered and changed. And we pray that we would be effective at what you have called us to do in the lives of those that are around us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In our study last week, we had made the statement that when we die and find ourselves in heaven, we're probably going to be surprised by a few things. We might be surprised that we find ourselves in heaven at all, but we're also going to be surprised at how glorious and terrifying God is. Sometimes people will say to me, well, I'm not afraid of God. And in the words of Yoda, you will be. You will be. Just give it time. And when you see him, you will be so blown away by who he is that you will think, I should have always have not just been afraid of God, but I should have been terrified of God. We're also going to be surprised as to who we are. Uh, it says in verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are his own special people. God has called you. He has chosen you. He has filled you with the Spirit. He has empowered you. And he has sent you out to a lost, dying, and perishing world that you would represent him to them. He could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have chosen one man every generation, kind of like a Billy Graham, to represent him to everyone. Give him influence. Let him reach into everybody's life. He could have chosen 10 people to do it instead of, instead of everybody. But God chose that even the least among us would represent him. That's why Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all of the prophets but you who are least in the kingdom of God are greater than him. I don't know, maybe we got the least in the kingdom of God here today. You ever feel like you're the least? You're greater than John the Baptist because God pours his spirit out upon all flesh. In the Old Testament, he only poured his spirit out upon leaders, kings, prophets, and priests. But in the New Testament, times, Joel said, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh so that he chooses each one of us here that we would go out and represent him. We are to live our lives in front of people around us. And sometimes we feel like we're not doing the work. We feel ineffective. 
Someone said to me one time, I worked for 10 years with people. By the time that I quit, not one person came to Christ. But here's the thing. You don't know what happened after you were gone. You don't know what happened when those individuals that you worked with and lived your life for Christ in front of did at the crucial moment of their lives when they would face eternity. You don't know what influence your life will make on the lives of those that are around you. It's work. We sow seeds, we water, we harvest, and we have to live our lives in such a way that people will see that we are not hypocrites. We need to live our lives in such a way that people can see that we are serious about what we believe. There are some people who claim to be Christians who need to take the bumper stickers off of their cars, or they need to stop wearing the Christian t-shirt or take off the WWJD bracelet because they're not living their lives the way that they should. Popular pastor, the church has become popular. It's kind of part of the new reformed movement for these young pastors to smoke cigars and go out and get drunk. And, and uh, this guy in, outside of Joplin, I don't know if you saw this story, this guy outside of Joplin, Missouri, had a church and kind of one of his whole big thing was, you know, we're men and it's kind of like a manly man, manly man, man church. And, and uh, he would go out on Saturday night and he would get drunk after he taught his Saturday night service and then kind of get, you know, get his, get his buzz on so he could come back and teach on Sunday morning. We got a DUI on his way driving home and made the national news. It's not a way you want to make the national news as a pastor by one who got a DUI. And so all of a sudden, he's got a little paper in front of him and he's reading an apology to everyone who was there and his testimony is hurt. But it could be hurt a lot worse than that. When we think of people living for Christ, you remember that David's great sin with Bathsheba, that his life was never the same after his sin with Bathsheba, that uh, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder even, was, and it was worse than it looks, because David knew Bathsheba. It wasn't like he was just up on his porch and looked out and saw her. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, who was one of his mighty men. Uriah and his dad were one of David's mighty men. All the way back to when David was running from Saul, the Bible says that men who were, who were um, in debt and discouraged ran to David and became his men. And God empowered them, anointed them, because God had called David as king, and so he anointed his men. Well, Uriah goes all the way back to those days. So he didn't just kill a young soldier who he didn't know. He killed somebody they had fought alongside of and somebody that he knew well, and he took his wife. And not only that, Ahithophel, David's counselor, was Bathsheba's grandfather. When Absalom took over the kingdom, Ahithophel told Absalom, take the remaining wives of David. David couldn't take all his wives with him. He had about 16 of them. <laughs> Don't know. Anyway, had about 16 wives. And um, he couldn't take them all with him when he ran from Absalom. And so Ahithophel said, take the remaining wives and go up on the housetop and go and sleep with them in the sight of all the people. Why would Ahithophel give him that kind of, uh, of counsel? because he would remember what David had done to his granddaughter. It, it all seems to make sense. But God would say to David, the life of the child, the, the, the child that would be from this pregnancy, eventually she would have another child, by the way, whose name would be Solomon, who would sit upon the throne. But this particular child, God said, will die because you have caused people to blaspheme my name. Because David was a man after God's own heart. And God had said that. And there are still people today who will say, I will not follow God because God said of David, he's a man after my own heart. And David was a murderer and an adulterer. 
And what kind of God says that that's a man after my own heart who's a murderer and adulterer? And so David had an opportunity to be able to live for God in such a way that people would see God, but instead he failed, and in his failing, people blasphemed the Lord. Now, that's a warning to us. David's life is a warning that we don't fail in such a way that people would blaspheme God because of us, that we would walk in sincerity, that we would walk without hypocrisy. It's a scary thing because the Bible says that none of us are perfect. The man who says he's without sin is a liar. That's what it says in 1 John. And so we humble ourselves before God and we pray that we'd be able to live our lives in such a way that people could see Christ in us, the hope of glory. In fact, I call this the foundation of our testimony. It is the foundation of our witnessing. We are not going to be able to witness if we aren't living what we've said. If you don't first live it, then you can't open your mouth and begin to say it. And if you do say it, then people are going to go. And how many people do we know that say, well, yeah, I'm not going to ever be a Christian because, you know, my father-in-law was, said he was a Christian. He was like this. Or my uncle said he was a Christian. He was like that. So they just don't have that testimony. So Peter wants to speak about our conduct. He goes in this new section of conduct and he has two thoughts with our conduct. Number one, that we need to have good conduct because people won't be able to malign us. They won't be able to lie about us. Their lies won't stick. They're going to be throwing lies at us anyway. They're going to malign us as Christians anyway. And Peter says, live your life in such a way that people aren't able to malign you. And second, and we'll get into this next week, so this is kind of exciting. Verse 1 of chapter 3, we're going to get into submission of wives, so you want to make sure to be here next week. It should be at the very least uncomfortable for me at times, and you'll want to be here for that. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that's the husband's, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Your conduct. Now, just put the submission of wives aside. We'll talk about that next week. But the idea that someone could be won to Christ by just our conduct without saying a word, someone's won to Christ. So living our lives the way we're supposed to has this twofold aspect to it. One, it stops people from being able to malign us and we're able to, to live for Christ. And number two, maybe by just the way we live, people can come to Christ. Now, if people can be won to Christ without you saying a word, certainly people can flee from Christ because they see you as a Christian living the way you shouldn't live. That's how powerful living for Christ is. And so he starts off in verse 11. Peter uses the word beloved. He doesn't use it the way that John uses it. When you read the book of 1 John, John's just a, he, he's older by the time he writes it. He's kind of like a, just a tender, older guy that says, my beloved, over and over again. Kind of like J. Vernon McGee was, my, my beloved, my beloved. When Peter says that Peter's not that cuddly, teddy bear kind of guy that John was. John's letter is, is very tender and very soft and very, you can see it, you can feel the, the urgency in the letter and his desire for the people who he's writing to. Peter's much more practical. Peter's that big fisherman and there's no more practical book than the book of First Peter. Maybe James, maybe they're both the same. They both kind of parallel each other. But uh, it's just real practical. So Peter, when he says beloved, he's not really saying my beloved like John does. He's saying beloved in the sense that you are loved by God. God loves you. 
And because God loves you, there's a way you should live. And so he says, beloved, I beg you. And, and Greek's a colorful language. It has often several words for one English word. There's several words for beg, and this is the strongest of all the words. I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you that you live this way. He says, as sojourners and pilgrims, beloved, I, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. Your home isn't even your home because one day you'll die and somebody else will move into your home. It's just here for you to use while you're here. Your car isn't your car. You'll get a new one later on or you know, when, whatever car you have when you die, somebody else will take that, probably your kids, and they'll sell it just to get the money to go spend it on whatever they want to spend it on. Not, this isn't where we live. We're here temporarily. Eventually, we'll go up into heaven and that will be our home. So he says, listen, you're a sojourner. So why live here as if this is your home? Beloved, I, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Now, earlier he had said, be holy because God is holy. The concept or idea of holiness is to be complete, is to be pure, is to be separate. God is complete in himself. He needs no others. God is pure. There is no darkness in him at all. And God is completely separate. There's no one like him. God says, I am God and there is no one like me. God isn't running around trying to be like anybody. God didn't go, I want to be like that movie star. I want to play golf like that guy. I want to play basketball like that guy. God is completely unique, and God calls us to be separate, calls us to be holy, calls us to be complete in Christ, calls us to be pure in righteousness by the blood of the Lamb and the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. So he says here, he says there, be holy because God is holy without making any argument at all. Now he gives us another argument. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And he doesn't give us a list of what fleshly lusts are because we already know what they are. We don't need people to tell us. I love in Galatians chapter 5, he says that. Now the lusts of the flesh are evident, he says. We all know what they are. 99.999% of us do. But then there's that one in the thousand that goes, no, it's okay, I get drunk. No, getting drunk is wrong. No, I can get drunk. I can have an affair. Uh, for everybody else, it's wrong, but for me, it's okay. I have heard every sin possible justified. Every sin possible. I spent 20 minutes with a guy trying to argue with me that it was okay for a single guy to fornicate. Going over all the passages that say, flee fornication. <laughs> so why does it say flee fornication? He says, well, it doesn't apply to young men. Really? <laughs> That's who it applies to. <laughs> First and foremost. That's why he's saying it. It's evident. And in Galatians, Paul writes and he says, the lusts of the flesh are evident. And then just in case you might forget, he gives you a list. And it's a big, long list. Envy and malice and, and, and spite. It gets, gets full of all kinds of things. Lewdness. We all know it's wrong. 99.999% of us know that as Christians, we're not supposed to cuss. Then every once in a while, you run into one Christian. It's all right for me to beep and beep and beep and cuss. We don't live in a PG world. We live in a bleep and bleep and R-rated world. And we go, are you smoking crack? What are you high on? 
What Bible are you reading? Let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, Ephesians says. Do you need more than that? Do you have liberty in that area that no one else has? And so you run into that over and over again. Now, the reason that he says abstain from fleshly lust, he doesn't give us this list, but we know what they are. I don't need to go over it all, right? We know what they are. The reason we abstain from them is because they war against our soul. We're the ones that suffer. The Bible says, if you sow to the flesh from the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit from the spirit, you will reap life. The Bible says in Galatians chapter five, which is a great chapter that talks about the battle of the, over the flesh. It says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't be loving and hating at the same time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are the fruits of the Spirit. And if you're walking in self-control, then you're not going to be out of control. So walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. One guy put it this way, get so busy doing the do's that you don't have time to do the don'ts. I don't know whether or not that's biblical. I don't know whether or not that works, but I like the idea of walking in the Spirit. Because the scripture says, that's the way I overcome the things of the flesh. I know when I try to fight the things of the flesh by fighting the things of the flesh, I'm usually not very good at it. Are you? When you go, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. I struggle in this area. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to yell at the kids anymore. <gasps> Stop it. I'm trying to pray, right? It's just like, it just doesn't work. But when we walk in the spirit, then we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, he says here, they war against your soul. That, that's one of the reasons God doesn't want you doing them because you are beloved. And when you are full of envy and spite and malice and fornication and lewdness, these things battle against your soul. So God says, I don't want you doing them. But that's not the only reason he doesn't want you doing them. He doesn't want you doing them because he doesn't want you having this corruption in your life. But also he says in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Don't forget that we are supposed to live our lives out loud, that we have the role of being those that people see. The, the average person in the world who doesn't know Christ is not going to walk through the doors of the church. They're not going to pick up their Bible tonight and read it. And if they do, if, if a non-believer that doesn't really doesn't go to church and just lives in the world, the average worldly person, if they begin to read their Bible, they're only going to get through a couple chapters in Genesis and then finally put it down. If they got a lot of fortitude, they might make it to Leviticus and then they bail out. I'm done with this. A lot of Christians bail out at Leviticus when they're trying to read their, their way through the Bible. So you got people at work, at school, that will not read their Bible, but they'll read you. That's why Corinthians says you are a written epistle sent by God. God has written on your life and then he sends you out so you can make a difference. Let your, your conduct be honorable among the Gentiles. Gentiles would be for us, it would be those who don't know Christ. So that when we say to them, hey, you want to come to church? When we're praying for them because of that distressed moment in their lives, when God's touching their heart, they would know that there's something that's different about us because of the way that we live. Now, he says, having your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
A couple different ideas there. Some believe that what he's saying is on the day of the visitation, when they have to stand before God as, a, as the judge or when Jesus returns, they're going to glorify God because of your life. They're going to say they were right. The other idea is that maybe they would turn to God in the day of visitation. That when things get difficult and tough for them or the, their life comes to an end, that because of what they've seen in your life, the conduct that's honorable, they would come to Christ. And again, I'll appeal to you that we don't know what our lives are doing. We don't know what the work that we're doing. It may seem monotonous. It may seem ineffective. But we have no idea what God's doing. God can take the smallest little thing and he can turn it around. He could take five, five uh, fish and a couple loaves of bread and he could feed 5,000 people with it. God can take the life of the least of the Christian and turn it around as you're living your life, doing whatever, thinking I'm doing nothing and no good for anybody. God could use it to bring many to Christ. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. The word submit, I have it underlined in my Bible because it kind of introduces a section here. We are eventually going to get wives submit to your husbands and we'll talk about that again, as I said, next week. But first of all, he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance. Uh, we don't like the word submit in general. If I walked up to you out of nowhere and said, submit, we wouldn't have a good conversation after that. We don't like that word. Remember, this Greek word isn't the word submit. It's a Greek word that we get submit from. He's simply saying to us that we need to put ourselves under the authority. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to a king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. He's saying God sets up governments so that you and I can live in peace and go about doing the work of the gospel. Everything is about what we're doing. Even the governments that are in place are about what we are doing. So we are to submit to the ordinances, listen to the governors. Verse says in verse 15, for this is the will of God that you do good, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish man. That the people, in their day, they were being maligned for all kinds of things. Nero had attacked Christians, the Roman elite, who were immoral. Uh, incest was common among the, the Roman elite. Pedophiles were common among the Roman elite. They were gluttons. They, they were just full of all kinds of immorality. And they claimed that Christians were immoral. Because we approach the Lord's table and talk about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. So they called it the early Christians cannibals. And they said that they were having orgies at their love feast. These Romans that had, you know, the elite Romans anyway, had orgies all the time, proclaimed that Christians dead. And so Peter is saying, look, you're being maligned. Don't give them a reason to malign you further. But live your life in such a way that they will see that they're lies, that they don't stick. One guy said that don't give them a place to latch on to. Like a dog, you know, he'd have to chew his own tongue if he's going to grab onto you. He just can't do it. Don't give any place for those arrows to stick onto you by living your life in such a way. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. These are the guys that are making these accusations as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. We are free. Of all men, the Bible says, we are the freest. But we want to use our freedom for the kingdom of God not for our own sin. That's what vice is. A vice would be our sin. Don't use your freedom for vice. Use your freedom to glorify God. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.